I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan, web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. Public opinion polls in the 1970s identified inflation as the most pressing problem facing the United States. Not crime, not poverty, not the threat of nuclear war, but the general rise in prices. The recession engineered by the Federal Reserve that began in late 1979 wrung inflation out of the system, but at the cost of what was at that time the biggest economic downturn since the 1930s. Inflation stayed low for the next four decades in what former Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke called the Great Moderation, but now inflation is back. The big question is whether this is a return to the inflation of the 1970s, or whether we're just seeing a temporary blip due to supply chain disruptions and other conditions caused by the pandemic. One way to try to get at the question of the durability of inflation is to take a more fine-grained look and consider price changes of individual goods and services, and not just the overall price index. An expert in this area is my guest today, Harvard Business School professor Alberto Cavallo. Alberto pioneered the use of online data to measure inflation, co-founding the Billion Price Project in 2008, as well as Price Stats in 2011, the leading private source of inflation statistics in over 20 countries. Alberto, welcome to Econofact Chats. Thanks, Michael. It is great to be here. Alberto, let's start off with some basics. Inflation is a rise in all prices in the economy. If I'm paying more for orange juice, rent, restaurant meals, and gasoline, but also my wages are going up in line with these other price changes, why do I care? Well, the problem is that things are never so smooth. There are many distortions along the way. What do you mean by distortions? Well, first, inflation is defined as the general uh, change in prices, but not all prices go up together at the same time. So there are winners and losers, depending on what people are actually buying. And second, inflation tends to hurt people whose wages do not go up, those on fixed incomes and others who may not see wage gains so quickly. Who are the others who wouldn't see wage gains like that? Well, for example, usually low-income people, uh, those in the informal sector who may not have uh, negotiation power with their wages, or even anyone who does not have access to financial instruments that can protect their incomes from inflation. In fact, in practice, what happens is that wages and incomes tend to adjust to inflation with a lag. So anytime there's a a big rapid increase in inflation, it's usually a time when there are many uh, distortions. Um, And then also as inflation rises, it also becomes more volatile. So it tends to introduce a lot of uncertainty into consumption and investment decisions. And that's basically what we're seeing right now in the U.S. So macroeconomists look at the economy as a whole. But as I mentioned in the introduction, 
you've pioneered the use of online price data to look at a billion prices, or so the project name suggests. Do you really have a billion prices? Yes. Well, the price data accumulates very quickly. We are now collecting about 25 million prices a day in 50 countries. And that means we get about a billion uh, in just 40 days. So to give you a sense of the magnitude versus traditional sources, in the U.S. alone, we collect 2 million prices per day, while the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, the BLS, collects about 80,000 prices once a month for the official CPI. So, so yes, we do have a lot of data, particularly for goods uh, that are well represented online. So what are some of the major takeaways from the analysis that you and others have found from all this online data? Do we need to rethink the idea of inflation as not a rise in all prices together, but instead a kind of mashup of price increases and price decreases? Yes, there is a, a growing academic literature that uses microdata to study how pricing decisions are made and how this can affect inflation dynamics. And we have learned that there are a lot of differences in pricing behaviors, depending on the type of retailer, even within sectors, and that the type of disruption or crisis that affects uh, companies can, can actually matter a lot for the pricing behaviors. Well, already, for example, the United States government publishes core inflation, which excludes food and fuels. So what you're doing is a little bit like this, but a mega version of that, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So some of these ideas of sectoral differences, for example, are old ideas. And the reason why national statisticians in the U.S. have traditionally ignored food and fuel that tend to be very volatile in the short run and, and, and focus on the concept of core inflation. But with microdata, we can just go much deeper in trying to understand the mechanisms uh, that are taking place and how different pricing behaviors are made in different settings. Are there some particular examples you'd like to point to? Sure. So, for example, in a paper I wrote with um, co-authors in 2019, uh, looking at the price impact of the trade war, we found that retailers tended to delay price changes uh, when they perceived that the impact on their costs was going to be temporary or they could find alternative ways to adjust. Uh, so the pass-through into retail prices was slow in that case. Another example based on my own research uh, was that if the retailers are competing online um, with, with retailers that, um, that have an expertise in, in, in uh, you know, pricing algorithms, for example, they uh, actually tend to adjust uh, their prices much faster to whatever cost pressures they're experiencing. And, and that leads to quicker pass-through into retail prices. And both of these things are important right now in the context of COVID because we have a lot of uncertainty about the persistence of the cost pressures that many retailers are, are facing. And also a lot of transactions have moved online during COVID. I like the fact that this is so linked to what's happening now with the uncertainty about the persistence and the online transactions. But another thing that we've seen over the period of the pandemic is that people have changed the set of things they buy. For example, many fewer restaurant meals and movie tickets and much more money spent on appliances for the home and for exercise equipment. I imagine that the basket of goods used by the government to gauge inflation has not kept up with these changes. But you have a research paper, don't you, where you, with your price data, you're able to track these shifts. What did you find? 
Right. So early on in the pandemic, it became obvious that um, everyone's consumption patterns were going to change with the lockdowns and the restrictions. But it was not clear how much this was really going to impact the measurement of inflation. Um, so as you pointed out, the problem is that the official CPIs in the U.S. and other countries, they're built with a relatively fixed set of weights across sectors. Um, we, and, and, you know, they only get updated once every two years in the case of the U.S. And the last time was in, in December 2019. Which was just before COVID hit? Exactly. And to be clear, this is fine in normal times. But when you get a crisis like COVID, it can completely disrupt the consumption patterns. And we may be getting for a while a very biased measure of inflation. And, and in particular, COVID was making all of us consume a lot more food, and a lot less transportation during this, this, this period. I mean, the food sort of manifested itself in myself and a lot of others gaining weight. Absolutely. So, but it's important also for inflation because these two sectors were initially having very different inflation rates. Um, and the CPI was just not able to adjust for that. Fortunately, uh, just like as, as there are new data sources for prices, like the ones I'm using online, there are also great new data sources for uh, expenditure patterns. And I was able to construct uh, my own uh, COVID basket. Uh, you really uh, want to use that word? <laughs> right. So you're right. So my own set of weights uh, for the CPI. By, and I did this by relying on the work of Opportunity Insights, which is another academic initiative based at Harvard that... Uh, relies on data from credit and debit card transactions in the U.S. to monitor spending patterns in real time. And, you know, using this data, I was able to recompute the CPI weights on a monthly basis and recalculate the U.S. inflation rate. What did you find with that? So I found that during 2020, the inflation rate was uh, being underestimated. And, and the intuition is simple. The official CPI was simply giving too much weight to transportation in other recreation sectors where prices were falling, uh, even though none of us were really were able to consume much uh, of them because we were not traveling and doing things we would normally do. Do you have information for 2021 as well? So interestingly, if you look is, is, uh, at 2021, uh, the opposite thing started to happen. And, and to be clear, the CPI was still putting too much weight on transportation. But now prices in that sector were increasing very quickly at the beginning of 2021, particularly subcategories such as used cars and trucks. So I found that if you adjusted the basket of the CPI to take that into account, the annual inflation rate in the U.S. would that now be about half a percent lower. Um, so there, there's um, an underestimation in 2020 and now an overestimation right now simply because we haven't been adjusting the basket of consumption in our statistics. And, and if anyone of you is interested, you can see the latest numbers. I update them every single month. You can simply Google Harvard COVID inflation and you can see the latest numbers. So that's really interesting because as macroeconomists, we look at the whole economy and this whole move to look at micro data, very micro data in this case, really can help inform us as to what's going on at the macro level. Another feature of the pandemic is shortages, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, there seemed to be panic buying. So for example, stores ran out of toilet paper. And more recently, transportation difficulties due to the pandemic have led to shortages in a range of goods from cars to electronics. 
You recently published an Econofact memo with your co-author, Alexei Kirstov, on shortages. Can you describe what you found? Yeah, so in the paper, we show that shortages in stockouts have been present all along since COVID started and for a very wide range of consumer goods. Um, uh, they actually have become a distinguishing feature of this crisis. And they're still very important in some sectors such as electronics and food, but they have recovered. The stockouts have fallen in other sectors such as healthcare goods and, and personal care items. You and Alexei made a very important distinction between temporary stockouts and discontinued products. Discontinued products, it's a permanent change, while temporary stockouts, it's temporary by the name. It's a temporary disruption. What was the relative prevalence of temporary stockouts versus discontinued products? And did you find a pattern in what types of goods were temporarily unavailable and which were discontinued? Yes, so you're right. We, we distinguish this because in some sense, the stockers were very visible at the beginning of the, of the pandemic. The, the stores would put up these labels and signs that showed products as being out of stock. And we call these in the paper temporary stockouts because implicitly the retailers are telling their customers that they hope to, they'll be able to bring these goods uh, back in stock very soon. And many of them did, things like toilet paper, wipes, and hand sanitizer. They all go, went back and became available once again. But after a few months, we noticed that many other goods were starting to disappear completely from the stores. And these discontinued goods, we, we call them permanent stockouts in the paper. Uh, they're not so obvious to consumers, but they really became the main type of, of stockouts early on. And they have continued to be very important since then. How did you track that? That seems like a challenge. Yeah, so we are simply looking at how many goods are available for sale now relative to pre-pandemic levels. Um, and we can keep track of that over time. And, and this is a good way to detect these supply problems because it, it truly shows that the retailers are having a hard time bringing many of these goods back into their stores. And even though, as I said, some sectors have recovered, others such as food and electronics were still seeing very large numbers of permanent stockouts, and they come in cycles that have lasted much longer than we all anticipated. So these shortages are very important in and of themselves, but you're also able to draw some implications about inflation from what you find about the relationship between shortages and price changes. Going back to the question I posed in the introduction, does your analysis suggest that the recent surge in inflation will likely abate? Or is inflation just something we need to get used to like people did in the 70s? I guess they also had to get used to disco music. Right. So our, our results, I would say, in general, they tend to suggest that inflation will likely abate um, eventually. No. Um, in particular, we find that uh, if, if you take into account the increasing cost, the price impact in, in, in a sector experiencing a lot of these shortages, is rather quick and large, it peaks at around two months, but it also becomes transitory and it disappears after three or four months. No? Um, and, and, you know, some sectors are also recovering. So that's a sign that this is a, a, a temporary source of, of, uh, of pressure on, on the cost sides and therefore on inflation. But there's a problem that we really don't know how long COVID will last, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So COVID is kind of an unprecedented uh, shock. And, and, you know, as long as the health crisis continues to cause some of these supply disruptions, 
um, we may end up with high levels of inflation for quite a while. This echo is something that your Harvard colleague, Greg Mankiw, said in an Accountifact Chats podcast about a year ago when I asked, how long do you think the downturn and the effects of the pandemic will last? He said it's very hard to say because we don't know how long the pandemic will last. And so that's really the big source of uncertainty and what's driving everything. A lot just depends upon dealing with the pandemic. That is exactly right. Alberto, you're from Argentina. It's a country that has a long history of high inflation and economic instability. And I imagine that in some ways, this background prompted your research interest in prices and inflation. Are there any lessons from Argentina that are appropriate for the United States today? Or are the two situations just so different? One doesn't really inform the other, for example. Yes, well, it's true. I I grew up in a very high inflation setting and I saw at a very young age the problems that inflation can create in in people's daily lives. So I guess my takeaway for the U.S. is that even though, you know, these temporary disruptions are appear to be a, a major driver of inflation right now, it is very important for policymakers to stay vigilant and, and not be complacent. We, we really need to keep monitoring these pricing dynamics and understanding what is driving them. Um, economies have a role to play in that, and I'm optimistic that we can um, do uh, a good job thanks to many of these new data sources that are becoming available. And I guess I'm also optimistic that U.S. policymakers will not behave as many Argentine politicians have in the past, and in particular that they will instead acknowledge the impact that their policies are having on inflation and and adjust accordingly. So I am optimistic about the U.S. relative to Argentina. Another source of inflation is discussed in a memo by Menzi Chin is just that expectations of inflation can drive inflation itself. What do you think is happening with expectations of inflation in the United States? We've had this long, great moderation, as Ben Bernanke called it. Is that coming to an end? Do you think, I know this is really speculative on your part, but do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, so I, I think it's important to distinguish different kinds of inflation expectations. Most people focus on investors and for Many of the macro discussions, the, the expectations we also care about are those of uh, firms and consumers. And we have some surveys, uh, good surveys in the U.S., some of them uh, done, for example, by the Federal Reserve of New York, that have been showing that consumer inflation expectations are increasing. But uh, most of those are at short-term horizons, so one year from now. And people then expect things to go back to normal uh, later on. So my sense is that even though there is some increasing consumer inflation expectations, we are very far away from a situation when where they would spiral out of control. Um, and, and of course, uh, what the Fed and other and the policymakers in general do in the U.S. will matter a lot for how these expectations behave in the future. And part of my answer in the pre- to the previous question was trying to get at this. I, I am optimistic that if inflation due to the supply disruptions or potentially an increase in demand continues to be high, uh, the Federal Reserve will, will, um, will react and try to bring it down. Because I guess what you saw in Argentina was that the work of the policymakers 
actually helped inflation feed on itself and became even hyperinflation in those countries. Hopefully we don't get to that, right? Absolutely. It, I will say it does take a long time of mismanagement in on the policy side to get to inflation rates like you see in Argentina, which is currently about 40 to 50 percent. Um, but it is important that, uh, you know, as I said, policymakers acknowledge that the, their policies have an impact on the inflation rate. No? And in Argentina, um, for, for decades, we saw many of them uh, blaming, you know, other, anyone else but the, the policies itself. And, and that led to a very bad outcome. Well, Alberto, thank you very much for speaking with me today. The efforts that you've put into detailed data collection are incredibly valuable, especially with the insights that you can provide in the current environment, where inflation has become, once again, a focus of policy concern. There's so much uncertainty about what's going on. Your work has really helped the public at this point, and thank you for that. Thank you, Mike. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. You can subscribe on our site to our newsletter that will let you know when we publish new memos and new podcast episodes. Please feel free to share this podcast and our memos with friends, colleagues, and on social media. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.